that night the city burnt, and the mother church of the city burnt with her. And yet the tower and the spire still stand, soaring to the sky, and I feel that's an emblem of the eternal majesty and love of God. Greetings. You are tuned into the Miserable Offenders podcast. Pull up a chair and join the conversation as we seek answers to life's big questions, drawing wisdom from the well of traditional Anglican theology. This is a production of the North American Anglican. Greetings and welcome to the Miserable Offenders podcast. This is Jesse Nigro. I'm one of your hosts and I've been gone for a while. I think uh, the the ship, when it does sail, though, has been ably commanded by the uh, my Reverend Canon friends who join me today. Uh, we have Father Isaac Rayberg in the house. Father? Great to be back. And the canon, Andrew Brazier. Hey, how's it going? Very good. Um, boy, this is, this feels like a high school reunion. It does, you know. I would say long time no see, but since I haven't seen you in the flesh, I guess long time <laughs> no here is appropriate. <laughs> right. Yeah, and uh, the technology is usually audio only because um, you guys don't need to know what color my sweatpants are. Um, <laughs> the sweatpants industry has grown in COVID tide. <laughs> oh heavens! And and so is the size of my sweatpants. But but that's neither here nor there. Um, um, well, it's it's good to be back. It's good to uh, um, be able to connect again. Um, before we jump into our topic today, I suppose we could do just a little bit of catching up. Um, What's been going on, guys? Have I missed anything since since the last episode? The last episode? That's like about a year at this point. So Okay, yeah. Uh, so, so a lot. <laughs> probably, probably a lot for everybody. <laughs> right, yeah. We, we did have yeah, a cliffhanger Andrew. of talking about baptism, and then we were getting ready to, to go into the next episode of Holy Communion. So people will just have to, to be on that cliffhanger for a while. Hopefully mm-hmm. not for another six months, but you never can tell with us. So. Well, I always say the Dominical sacraments are worth waiting for. <laughs> true, true enough, true enough. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, that, that's, that's like the, uh, um, that's the not infant communion take, I guess. They're worth waiting for, kid, right? <laughs> um, uh, which brings us around to Eastern Orthodoxy, which is part of what we're going to discuss today. Um, but I'll, I'll volunteer some information. We've got a baby on the way. We're about a month out. Congrats. That's awesome. Thank that's you. Awesome. Yeah. That's, uh, it's exciting, stressful, uh, you know, elated, worried, all those things. Um, and uh, still trying to figure out a name. So you guys I mean, uh, I'm just going to throw anything. it out there. The, 
you know, Isaac Andrew, you know, uh, uh-huh. sounds like a great combination. <laughs> so. <laughs> that, that's better than my idea of consulting like a, like a tabletop RPG roll sheet or something like that. <laughs> roll, roll, roll for name. <laughs> yes. Oh, there you go. Roll. Yep. Yeah. Oh, roll the uh, Urum and Thurum and, and see what uh, is discerned there. Does, can you also sort of like, uh, create a character sheet for your baby be like well your initiative's good but uh your fortitude's a little you know we're gonna have to work on that one uh, I, I did get for a godson once a um a level one human onesie when he was born. <laughs> that's cool that's really cool I like it. man uh, well they they level up quickly don't they all that dungeon crawling <laughs> wow, this has really descended into some deep, deep, profound nerddom, but uh, I don't mind it. <laughs> so anyways, that's what I've got on my on my radar. Um, Father Isaac? Oh, we've, we've just been uh, using all of this COVID time for doing house improvements like all of our neighbors. And, yeah. Uh, some of which we, uh, we mean to do, some of which we wish we didn't have to do. <laughs> mm. Touche, touche hear that uh andrew how about you you know yeah i'm trying to think of anything halfway interesting um this is kind of the, the same old song and dance but still uh plowing away on uh finalizing um republishing thanks to uh the north american anglican and uh and it's uh, press which correct me if i'm wrong jesse but is the press known as uh little getting press is that correct or uh that would be the sort of poetry literary arm. that's right Okay. Yeah, the the more uh, doctrinal theological arm is just North American Anglican Press. Well, that's straightforward. So, <laughs> you know, but yeah, uh, kudos. We to, may come uh, up with something creative later, but go ahead. Uh, why, why, why reinvent the wheel? You know, just keep it simple. <laughs> so, but yeah, we're working on uh, finalizing um, the republication of uh, Bishop John Jewell's uh, treatise on Holy Scriptures and treatise of the sacraments. Uh, yeah, we, we've edited the um, the original work, and I'm working on a slight modernization. I don't really think it needs it, but I'm doing it just to help get it, hopefully, in the hands of, of more uh, Anglicans or uh, those who are uh, interested in the early Reformation to get back to the the horse's mouth at Fontes. And uh, my my sincere hope is that. It'll get picked up by some uh, seminarians and used to see, you know, what the early English reformers were doing when they engaged with the fathers and were reforming uh, the Church of England to bring it back to its uh, ancient uh, Catholicity through the lens of the Reformation. That's super exciting. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad um, someone's excited about it. <laughs> <laughs> see, see, when your day-to-day life is so interesting, you don't have to come up with new stuff, Andrew. It's, <laughs> you just are just always doing interesting things. Um, I, I think mo- these modernation, modernization projects are valuable uh, because while I do sort of personally wade through Google Books and archive.org, yeah. mm-hmm. um, very often like the old antiquated spellings of, of uh, various books of the Bible or names of saint. Like it's like, as Austin says, I'm like mm-hmm. Austin 316 or. Yeah. 
Saints, Stone Cold, and, and then uh, <laughs> and then uh, you know what's another one that always gives me? It's like uh, it's, it says they're in Toby. Yeah. Which is Tobit. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like, what? Toby. That just reminds me of uh, The Office. The, the office. <laughs> and oh, Toby's hey, the Toby. worst. So, yeah, right? Toby is the worst. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I do think those things are needed, um, especially to, like you said, show how they're, how people like Jewel are drawing from different sources and understanding them in various ways. And that's one thing we've been doing at, on the uh, web journal of the North American Anglican. We've been republishing the homilies. Mm -hmm. And just to take the opportunity to like, just every time that a, a saint or a Bible verse is referenced to sort of have that there. So someone can go and look and say, well, here's, um, I mean, one, one sort of feature of this kind of retrieval project is that it allows modern readers to see how the um, Anglican fathers were understanding or interpreting those various verses or passages or doctors of the church. So it's good work, good work to be done. It, it is. I'm really glad that uh, North American Anglican is doing that in uh, republishing the homilies. Uh, it's surprising to me how many um, Anglican clergy have never cracked them open, you know, looked at them and digested them. They are mm -hmm. great to uh, to wrestle with, uh, to use as a resource, and uh, to see the uh, the citations of the fathers. Um, you know, gives me a, a strangely oh I forgot how Wesley word, worded it, but a, a strangely oh yes my heart. Um, so, Which... anyway, I'm glad that y'all are doing that. Yeah, I was I was listening to um, Lee Gaddis being interviewed about his new modernization of Book One of the homilies. And um, he made such a great point in that interview where he said, um, you know, the last two homilies are the one against adultery and then the uh, one against brawling and how um, that second to last one against adultery really shows the immorality problems we have in our society are nothing new. Mm. And so, you know, he, he said, you know, this is this is still very timely. And then that last one against brawling, he said, yeah, we could really apply that to social media. I was like, oh, my goodness. I, That's you know, it's great. been a couple of years since I've read those ones. I'm always in the, the first chunk that are so, you know, those core Reformation doctrines. And I kind of ignore sometimes or just kind of breeze over these more practical ones. So I was like, oh, those, that's really great. I might have to, might have to teach through some of those in Sunday school upcoming. Yeah, I agree. And, and I think it also gives us an insight into sort of what the pulpit has been and maybe properly can be used for. Um, you know, there, there are different traditions that uh, I think are sort of, well, let's just say across the board on, on the sort of liberal Protestant slash Roman Catholic, because in many ways that's kind of the same thing these days, um, side of things, the the homiletics are something like uh go and give a dollar to a homeless person and be nice to your mother and do your chores and i think it's the same day of uh you know so and so and god bless you know and and so it's so it's all like very practical kind of morality tales what mm -hmm. and whatnot and on the other side, you, and maybe 
these sort of self-identified Orthodox and, and I would say generally Protestant kind of traditions, you have like, well, did you give them the gospel? Did you talk about Jesus? Or you, know, you, you have various sort of like ways to hem in the preaching because, I mean, look, we all know preaching can go wrong. And I think that each of these traditions kind of has their own built in, like, well, don't deviate from the lectionary or, or uh, do uh, preaching through entire books of the Bible, you know, like different ways to, to sort of rein things in. Um, do law and gospel preaching, right? And, and these aren't bad things in and of themselves, but I mean, I love the fact that the, the, these homilies have homilies are like, hey, guess what? Today, we got to talk about how you morons keep beating each other up in the middle of the streets. You know, <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's imminently practical, but, but that's what the Bible is for us. I mean, it's, it's just such a temptation to like, well, maybe this lesson has to be sort of this profound, like upper, upper level sort of spiritual discipline lesson or some sort of psychological kind of uh, exercise in understanding the other or something, or, or on the other side, you know, it can be like just a, a sort of social justice guilt trip. But I love the fact that it's like, Hey, um, you know, the day-to-day -day life of every Christian is something that the Bible has a lot to speak to. And the fact that enshrined in these homilies that were intended to sort of, I mean, if you know the history of these things, to sort of retrain the English clergy on how to preach and mm -hmm. what kind of preaching a Reformed Catholic Church engages in. I mean, I think it's pretty interesting, some of the subjects that are, uh, you know, tackled there. But um, So once again, I look forward to hearing more from uh, the homilies or, or uh, I guess we, we moved on from Jewel, but I look forward to posting more of these homilies on the website. Um, what do you guys think of, not to change the topic too drastically, but, oh, I don't know, universalism, <laughs> Eastern Orthodoxy, David Bentley Hart, uh, what do you, what, is is God a loving God or is he a mean Calvinist? Is that is that like a a, a false dichotomy? Is that is that a fair thing to say? We all know those are the only two options. Right? <laughs> <laughs> right. It's either David Bentley Hart or it's John MacArthur. There's nothing else. <laughs> right, right. And it's like you, you might find a loving God, but not a or a loving Calvinist, but not a loving God in a Calvinist theology. Right. I, that's I right. Know. That's I, right. <laughs> Uh, supposedly right and so so this is sort of it was brought to our t attention i think father isaac you you brought this to our attention um a post that was made and i think it was um along these lines do you want to maybe describe some of the the themes that were um brought up and, and this was in the context of a facebook discussion group but yes and so um yeah, for, I, th I think it's it's good to start out by saying that um, this kind of perceived dilemma between God's love and God's wrath um, 
is a major theme for a lot of folks. This is this is not a throwaway as much as, you know, we kind of laugh at some of the extremes. And, um, you know, a, a, a Facebook friend of, of all of us um, was was bringing this up for discussion. Is he a god of wrath or is he a, or is he a, a god of love? And is this something that we as traditional Anglicans can talk about um, with without falling into some of some of those extremes? Um, is there a place for um, maybe a hypothetical universalism? Is there a place for a a a, a God who doesn't want to um, you know who who is not willing for the death of the sinner and with that in mind, is it appropriate for Christians to kind of take pleasure in their foes facing damnation? And that's, that's really kind of the way a lot of the discussion was framed. Yeah, and, and, and uh, Andrew, I wanna get your opinion on some of this stuff, but, but I, I just, I think the thing that strikes me about the way it was framed from the get-go is that there are a lot of categories and independent issues that all deserve their own sort of just desserts in, in their careful treatment that were kind of collapsed together as well. This leads to this, leads to this. For instance, Father, you said uh, hypothetical universalism. Um, and we can return to this, but this is uh, this is a view that is within can, within Orthodox Reformed thought that is entertained by people like uh, Bishop John Davenant from mm -hmm. uh, the English Reformational tradition. Um, you also mentioned um, sort of wrath versus love. Like, are these even able to coexist? Um, and, and I think that's sort of, you know, First of all, I just want to say, well, the scriptures seem to treat on both, so I, I'm uncomfortable with any kind of dilemma that forces us to choose or any any proposed solution that doesn't involve both. Mm -hmm. um, and then, gosh, it's slipping my mind, but but uh, one one of the other things that was mentioned is, well, first of all, hypothetical universalism pertains to. Uh, whether or not Christ's death on the cross was on behalf of all or just those who um, are elected to eventually persevere and, and be saints in heaven, right? Yeah, um, kind of what's the, what's the interaction between the atonement and election, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and I think that's, hey, that's something we're talking about. I'm... In that sense, I'm a universalist, right? I, I kind of agree with hypothetical universalism or St. Thomas Aquinas or the Lutheran position, you could say. Um, but In then that there's, the atonement is not a limited atonement to, to right. borrow from Tulip, yeah. yeah. Right, Christ died for everybody. But then there's this whole other issue that kind of gets dragged into this thread kind of through the back door, which is to say, and if you don't think Christ only died for some people, then, I mean, then there's these, I guess, two other issues. The one is, do you hate the non-Christian slash 
wish for their damnation. Like, first of all, I, I don't know if I know people who even think that. And then the other one is, you know, if, if you're a universalist in the one sense, does that mean that everybody is going to go to heaven eventually? Um, right. Which is the, the thesis of David Bentley Hart's book. And, and this is an, this is kind of an old, uh, is a position that Catholics and thinkers in the uh, Nouvelle theology were sort of entertaining in the 1950s and 60s. Um, but, but I just wanted to kind of point, point out that like, there's a whole cluster of somewhat related, but not necessarily interrelated, you know, <laughs> subjects yeah. that are brought together in this thread. Mm-hmm. And it, it would be good for us to kind of, pick them apart and and deal with them one at a time rather than um, feel forced to collapse them all together. Um, Andrew, what do you think? Yeah, and there's so many topics like within there that I think it's kind of best to tackle it one by one as best that we can on, on a podcast. And what I would say is that I have met, you know, kind of that that stereotype of like the the raving, you know, uh, super Calvinist who almost delights in um, the judgment of the wicked. So I've experienced that before. And I know where, where that can definitely burn people uh, no pun intended on that, but how that can definitely, you know, <laughs> sorry, that was poor, but, <laughs> but uh, no pun intended, like I said on that, but it does, you know, rub people the wrong way and rightfully so, because it's strange. It's like, you know, wait a second. I thought that you're saying that God is love. The scripture says that God is love and you have this glee for the judgments on on sinners and that's an appropriate criticism to make but i don't think the reaction to you know someone who holds this perverted excitement at someone's judgment should make you go into the opposite extreme and then deny that there will be a judgment Mm -hmm. um we profess in in the creeds you know of a, a judgment um of the living and the dead and through the power of Christ's perfect sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection, both the living and the dead, of course, um, or excuse me, both the wicked um, and those who are in Christ will be raised from the dead uh, bodily uh, to judgment, of course, to life everlasting or to judgment for uh, remaining in their sins. And so I think that we need to first, you know, go to the scriptures and examine it but also be mindful of uh, what the fathers have said, how they've interpreted uh, the word and the Catholic tradition over time. And I think that's the, the best way to approach this topic, which frankly in today's world uh, is offensive to many non-believers and even believers alike who want to kind of bury the idea uh, of there being a judgment. But I definitely agree. We don't take you know glee in the fact that, there's judgment. If anything, we should be mindful of our own souls and remember the fear of the Lord and give thanks to God that he's provided uh, a savior uh, for us. So this feels like to me, we're, we're staring down probably a, a couple episodes for the podcast on this one, <laughs> <laughs> which, which is not a bad thing. Um, no, not at all. And so maybe we can, we can begin by talking about the big category of um, that, that love and wrath um, interaction in the scriptures and in our formularies and the fathers and that sort of thing. 
Uh, yeah, so love and wrath. Is that in the scriptures or is that just a Western soteriological uh, category? I thought Love and Wrath is like the next Thor movie. Or my wrong <laughs> I think that is actually true. Uh, <laughs> it, 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 and and as a uh, as a, uh, a good erratic thinker, I think both things can be true. Actually, so absolutely, um, absolutely, uh, both the Thor thing and the Bible, but also Love and Wrath. Um, well, well, and and look, it, the the scriptures clearly speak of both. Right. I mean, it, right. it's not it's not like uh, hidden, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, uh, I think the the error of of Marcionism kind of comes forward here when we start to pit, you know, very often. Well, there's the wrathful God of the Old Testament, and then there's nice old Jesus in the New Testament, you know, and um, and part of that comes from trying to portray who someone who's actually uh did everything right to get himself executed which is to say not act like mr rogers you know (laughs) um i mean jesus went out of his way to be adversarial to all of the people who he needed to right um and so I, i think that this idea though that God has to be ultimately only one of these things so we can explain the other away is just, it, it leads to all kinds of errors. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, the, I think the Marcionism thing is just one, but the universalism sort of th- seems to be another possibility. Yeah. yeah, it also very much flattens out God. Mm-hmm. I mean that that's that's a very boring God who is only one thing or another, um, and that's not to not to go against divine simplicity um, or all. That's one of my favorite um, topics of classical theism. But sure. um, you know, in what ways is God's love expressed by His wrath? In what ways does He handle His wrath through His love? Mm-hmm. Um, you know. All, all, all these things work together. You know, one of the one of the ways God described Himself in the Old Testament is a jealous God, and um, as it was pointed out to me many years ago, that's a really good thing mm-hmm. because that means He wants to protect what 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 is His, and that's us, mm-hmm. right? You know, so that jealousy is going to manifest as wrath when His people are unfaithful, but that's also an aspect of protecting them from their their tendency to stray their tendency to self-destruction um their tendency to destroy that which is best um i.e their their relationship with the lord and father isaac that kind of goes back to you know uh, the older i get the more the marriage covenant and seeing god's desire and love for us ring truer and has more of a clarity for myself personally well, like you said, God being a jealous God, how many times has he used that illustration to ancient Israel and continues to use it for the church that, you know, he has married himself to us. And so he's extremely mm-hmm. jealous when Israel goes off and forsakes him for these false idols, for these demons. And what he does uh, for Israel, his chastisement, his you know punishment of, of Israel is to call Israel to repentance, to return to its first love, you know, um, the Lord God Almighty. And so, like you said, the, the jealousy of God is actually a good thing, a, a loving thing, because 
who would want a spouse who didn't care what you did, you know, with whomever, and just simply didn't care enough to say, no, I want you to be for myself, for my own. I want us to be one, to be together. Yeah, that, yeah. that shows a lack of valuing to be not jealous. Right. I, I mean, I think those people sadly do exist in our current culture, but um, true. I, or 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 they they think that they would like that, but but I think in their heart of hearts, no one truly, you know, we, we all sort of know that we've settled for something artificial for selfish reasons. But, um, it, yeah, I mean, that's the the whole book of Hosea is right. This mm-hmm. this kind of analogy, and I think that 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 kind of gets into maybe some of the problems that people have with the the wrath language because. Um, the Bible does use these sort of um, terms to talk about sort of give human anthropomorphic sort of traits to um, the eternal, divinely simple God, as, uh-huh. as we discussed. Um, and we understand and experience those things analogically. We don't know what it's like to be eternal timeless you know all all those things right and so but the scriptures gives us a sense like well god god is a jealous god does that mean that like you know he like i don't know um is you know knows the passwords to all your cell phones or whatever you know it's not the same thing (laughs) as like a a maury episode or whatever but 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 i think you know so so that's one thing there's there's a sort of an, an analogical relation between the human experience of things like wrath jealousy love and sort of the way that those things um are communicated out of just god's eternal being his properties uh the other thing is that you know and i just wanted to sort of remark that in the same sense that that would flatten out and this is kind of what we've been saying, the same sense that it really flattens out God. I mean, it would really flatten out a human person too, right? Really? I yeah. mean, it, it it would make for a poor husband, a poor father, you know? Like, it, like if I'm angry w- with my children, is it because um, I don't love them? No, very, us- usually my anger is because some love that I have is sort of being violated, you know, like, or, or I'm angry that there's some danger that, that they're going to stray into unwittingly. Right. And so there's, there's this sort of, um, you know, sense in which like, in, in a weird way, people want to make God sort of not a more robustly interesting, um, mind and being than than someone they know in real life but less than you know which seems like the opposite way to go yeah and to be honest you know we you know uh sinners on this side of the age to come we're so two-faced and two-hearted you know it's easy to say i just really want god to be an all-loving god who never ever ever you know has any anger or judgment whatsoever that's who I want to worship because we like to make idols. That's what we do for a living. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, something happens in our life and we want judgment. You know, I have been wrong. You know, I, why yeah. doesn't God act? Why doesn't he intervene? And if we're honest with ourselves, 
you know, there's an inconsistency that we indeed want to be loved by God and we need his righteous judgment. We pray for mercy upon our own sins because we know that we cannot survive the trial, you know, at the end of the age. But when something wrong occurs to us, when our trust has been violated, when we have been wronged, now, of course, not everyone walks out, maybe some of us do, and call upon judgment and shake the dirt off our feet. <laughs> but we certainly feel wrong, and we want things to be made uh, right. And so I think that we we very much like this language of flattening out. We do this, you know, because we're, we're two-faced. We'll flatten out in one direction in one given situation, and then we'll flatten out in another in terms of when we want judgment in any given situation, so long as it benefits us. Now, if the judgment's against us, we start going back uh, I just recently reread Mere Christianity with a, a small group of ours at, at the uh, parish. Mm-hmm. And Lewis makes a great point of how, you know, we are all about the love of God until the judgment, you know, is pointing towards us. Then we start to excuse away. Now, hold on, hold on. <laughs> that commandment, you know, like it just doesn't understand, you know, today's living. And of course, he's writing this and he's giving the radio lectures in the 1940s during World War II and writing the book in the 50s. You know, like, that God just doesn't understand the way modern life is. And, here we are, um, goodness, like 60, 70 years later, longer. And, uh, and it's the same excuse that we give for ourselves when it comes to desiring the love of God, rejecting the wrath of God, and then turning around desiring judgment for ourselves when it benefits uh, us. I'm reminded of when, uh, when, when we're told, uh, I believe St. Paul says that, you know, okay, nobody, nobody enjoys the chastisement from their fathers when they're getting it as a kid. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is my paraphrase, but you know, when you look back on it as an adult, you realize it was for your own good. And, uh, and, and that's not saying that the, the, that, that we can, you know, look at, look at God as a, as a overbearing father who's like, well, this is, you know, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. This is for your own good. Not, not that kind of thing. But, um, there is some comfort in the wrath aspect of God because that means he is going to make everything right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we, we don't, we might not get a whole lot of the, a whole lot out of the imprecatory Psalms as American Christians, but that's because we're not really dealing with the kind of exile and persecution the Israelites were. Um, this is the kind of thing that historically the church has seen very comforting mm. when it's um, when it is being beat down. Um, this is the kind of thing that the slaves found comforting. Um, you know, the Exodus I- ideas of okay, there will be judgment coming upon Pharaoh, and that's not because okay, now, you know, this gives us an excuse to hate the pharaohs in our lives, but it does mean that Pharaoh is not going to get away with. The things he's doing to God's people and to God. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a good point. I was going to bring that up um, personally. I, I've, I'm uh, finding myself more and more uh, in line with some of the imprecatory psalms, um, especially as you know. I look at sort of the way society is headed. Um, you know, we have a state that makes it harder to have a certain kind of abortion and. And, you know, every major media outlet and corporate what have you goes nuts. Um, You know, certain rights and liberties are being taken away. I think 
you know, I think that there are wicked people in high places and, and that's, you know, um, maybe that's always the case, but the, the more that I sort of look around and I say, my, my God, what, what kind of life are my children going to live, live, you know, what kind of society and freedoms will be left for them? Um, I don't mind praying for God to take wicked men and ruin their plans. <laughs> I think that's, that's called loving the people who aren't wickedly trying to destroy others, you know? And, and so, you know, now does that mean that I hope they go to hell? No. And, and I think that's, you know, maybe we need to sort of just pause and, and we can all sort of sign on the dotted line. Like, like I, Jesse Niagara do not, Rejoice that anyone goes to hell, nor do I pretend to know for certain that certain people are going to hell or, you know, any of those things. It's, you know, any any sort of human life that was created by a loving creator that through its own fault fails or rejects the love of Christ is it's a tragic situation. Right. Um I appreciate, you know, with that example, like, you know, Bishop uh, John Shelby Spong just recently died. And a lot of my, a lot of my friends on, on Facebook said, um, I really hope he repented of those heresies before he died. Mm -hmm. um, and at the same time, we're going to call out those heresies. This is a good example, mm -hmm. a good time to do that. You know, my, my, my bishop said, um, well, there's, you know, there's one less scoundrel in the Anglican communion to do damage. And that's a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, we, we hope that there was repentance. We hope there was, um, turning to that Jesus that he didn't really believe existed. Mm -hmm. in, in a, not to interrupt, but isn't that both and sort of the mark of, of really approaching these things with, with an Orthodox and a, a truly Christian mindset? Amen. I mean, I mean, you pray for your enemies. That doesn't mean that they cease to be your enemy, right? right? I have to imagine that that if you think of actual physical war, that there have been many God-fearing Christian soldiers looking through a scope and muttering prayers for everyone before they pulled the trigger and tried to end their life in order to save their brothers in arms next to them, right? I mean... Andrew, go ahead. Yeah, it, no, I, I agree. And I think that, you know, kind of the, the distinguishing that we need to make, like for anyone who's like a new listener, is that, you know, no, as Christians, we should not rejoice, you know, in the, you know, condemnation and judgment of hell for anyone. Uh, because after all, you know, all of heaven rejoices when a single sinner repents and turns to Christ. Uh, but what does that mean practically? I think we've kind of transferred to that kind of next topic of we should not at all rejoice or wish hell upon any soul, but instead we should pray and truly love our enemies. But you make a good point, Jesse. Practically speaking, what does that look like in a world that is uh, even further always been hostile to Christ, but we now live uh, here in the United States where it's becoming more hostile to Christianity? And I think that means that, and we've had this discussion before with our, our men's fellowship group that you can get irate. You can be angry about the way uh, the world um, appears to be advancing and sometimes appears to be winning, but you can't let your anger uh, control you. You've got right. to remember to pray for those whom you oppose, pray for their plans, the plans of the wicked to be confounded, um, as scripture says. 
um, and also pray for those who are uh, potentially being deceived by those who are in positions of, of authority, trying to lead others astray. But that doesn't mean that you pray for, you know, anyone to go to hell. And I don't think anyone's advocating for that. I'm certainly not in this group, you know. Um, right. Right. And I think the reason why is, is it goes back to scripture of, you know, why would Christ command us to, to love our enemies? Why would he command us, to forgive our own brethren, you know, not seven times, but, you know, 70 times seven. And it goes to show that out of love, we should speak the truth, but always remember to speak the truth in love. And why do we do that? Precisely because we believe that there is a judgment and there is redemption and salvation from this uh, judgment. I recall um, the comedy uh, group slash um, uh, magicians, um, Penn and Teller, um, one of them was giving an interview, and I can't remember who it was, and I think they're both atheists, uh, but the one who's giving the interview was certainly an atheist, and he made the comment, he's like, I'm never offended when a Christian tries to uh, proselytize me. I expect yeah. them and would hope them to, because if they really believe what they believe, how incredibly, I forgot how you put it, but like rude or just selfish it would be not to share that good news. Mm -hmm. And I've shared that before in a sermon. I just thought that is a great point coming from the mouth of a, of a self-professed atheist of how dare we think that we're greater than God who has told us to go and make disciples of all nations. No, I won't even bother to tell anybody at the checkout line. <laughs> about, you know, that I have a faith in, in Jesus Christ, you know, or to reach out to them and invite them uh, to come and join with us, to come and see. I was just looking at the uh, homily in the first book of homilies on the, uh, the danger of falling away. And um, one of the points that the, that the homilist makes, I forget who, who, who wrote this one or if we even know who wrote this one, but um, one of the points that is made is that, um, you know, God is going to use gentle things to try to get our attention. But if that's not working, he's going to use really <laughs> bad things. Mm -hmm. And, and, and it seems that, you know, and including, including exercising that full wrath. Um, and, and it seems that there, there are times when, um, that that wrath of God being being poured out in whatever way that looks like, whether it's you know one of the nations in the Old Testament or or, or whatever, um, can serve as that signpost post to others. Okay, let's not fall into that status. Let's you know you know there 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 but for the grace of God go I kind of thing. And, and so there is mercy even sometimes in in the midst of the wrath. That wrath can be a form of mercy. Mm -hmm. Well, that reminds me of something uh, Lewis says, and uh, I don't mean just to constantly quote him, but I've been reading him recently, so I'll blame it on that. Do but it. He points out <laughs> how, <laughs> how when it comes to um, the judgment that's experienced, you know, ultimately at the day of judgment, you know, two things will happen. You know, either our prayer for thy will be done will be done, or mm -hmm. God will turn and look to the unrepentant and say, your will be done. And in preparation for the episode, I was data mining, trying to find a, a quote that I'd heard from one of the Eastern fathers 
many years ago and I couldn't find them. Instead, I stumbled upon this where I'm curious if Lewis, which he, he did like to, to generously um, borrow quotes, I'll say, without attribution <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> but uh, this quote from St. Isaac of Syria, where he says, I also maintain that those who are punished in Jehanna are scourged by the scourge of love. Nay, what is so bitter and vehement as the torment of love? It would be improper for a man to think that sinners in Jehanna are deprived of the love of God. The power of love works in two ways. It torments sinners. Thus, I say that this is the torment of Jehanna, bitter regret. But love inebriates the souls of the sons of heaven by its delectability. Now, of course, of course I know that you can data mine the fathers, you know, but, but I just want to point out that that kind of is drawing forth that thought that Lewis is certainly echoing as well. It, it, it reminds me, too, of sort of this other, you know, it, and I guess this is kind of heading us in the direction of whether or not there's an East and West divide when it comes to God's wrath versus God's love, our sort of so how we're saved and, and what we're saved to. But um, it, it's my experience, and, and it's sort of a, a common point that's made in uh, reformational circles that forgiveness is um, good news if you're prepared to hear it but for many who are sort of you know given over to a reprobate mind it actually comes across as condemnation right because you're suggesting I've got something I need forgiving for you know and and I think that's sort of like you know, once you're in this, you know, state of eternal sort of destination, which whichever way you're, you're, you find yourself, um, that's, that's almost the, the, the amplified version of that, you know, people don't like to hear they're forgiven if they don't want to believe they need forgiving, mm -hmm. just as people don't really like, they're going to find God's love painful if, um, that's something they chose to reject. You know, I, I think there's, there's a sort of analogy there, but, but it also kind of gets into, you know, this other, it's interesting that that was an Eastern father and yet these concepts are sort of, are often, you know, basically if you take a, take God's wrath seriously in some circles, you're, you're considered like a hyper Augustinian or Calvinist of, of some sort. Um, and, and I think that's worth, uh, worth discussing. It is, does Eastern Orthodoxy in its tradition, and, I, and I'm not willing to sort of cede this point that there is a single tradition on, on these things, first of all, but does it offer like an option that makes God's, that, mutes god's wrath or does away with it or um i mean my understanding is that people like david bentley hart are not really um well regarded within the let's say the orthodox among the orthodox if you will mm -hmm. yeah i'll say this that in just kind of my anecdotal uh encounters with uh, with local eastern orthodox across the state of alabama that those who um you know, aren't uh, converts, and I'm not saying that all Orthodox converts, you know, don't really know Orthodoxy, um, but I'm just saying that those who are typically converts have a more propensity to really latch on to Hart's work 
is what they've told me. And the mm. ones who have been born in orthodoxy will typically, both Greek and Russian, because a lot of people will make distinctions, rightfully so, on how they uh, view orthodoxy in and of itself, that he's not as well regarded um, in general. Now, of course, what does that mean unless you actually engage with with the topic? But that's why for, for me, when I was reading the, the Eastern Fathers and I had a particular interest in the East because I had never researched and read their theology, and this was gosh, it was over a decade ago, um, I did see, you know, a difference in the emphases of mm-hmm. biblical theology. But, I, and, and maybe people call it, you know, Western versus Eastern thinking, but I think it's really just a different emphasis in terms of uh, the same scriptures. But as you progress from the uh, the early uh, Middle Ages, you know, uh, antiquity, into the latter Middle Ages, when East and West really start to see some differences with each other, I would certainly concur that the West goes down a different path in terms of how uh, it fleshes out. And I say the West broad in general, when we were all Roman Catholics, you know, thinking roughly of the very late eight to nine hundreds into the one thousands, you know, and eleven hundreds post uh, so-called um, schism between the West and the East in terms of how we flesh things out. I mean, if you look at, you know, Dante's Inferno, which is not a theological, um, you know, work in the sense of you must believe in hell this way, you certainly right. see how the thought has really evolved and developed uh, for better and for worse in terms of how hell is thought of. Um, and in the East, um, in my personal opinion from, from reading those saints, uh, you definitely see this emphasis of, look, the love of God and the wrath of God is one and the same. And just to throw in another quote that I thought was beautiful and just to steal again from Lewis, we can title this the episode where Andrew just stills and regurgitates Lewis. <laughs> in, the, in The Great Divorce, if you recall, and if anyone hasn't uh, read that, I encourage you to read it. He makes this beautiful picture of, and slightly humorous, of where some of the, the uh, those who are condemned to hell take a trip to heaven. <laughs> and when they mm-hmm. get off the bus, they're complaining about everything. Uh, the bishop who is condemned to hell, which I think is quite uh, humorous, and he does a great way of making commentary on uh, his time, which unfortunately things only got worse since Lewis, but makes this comment of he comes out and it's too bright. And of course, those of you who are familiar with scripture know that it's God himself who is, you know, the sun who provides the light, you know, of the new heavens and the new earth. It's too bright. They're complaining about that. The grass feels like, you know, daggers, you know, stepping upon the grass. Everything is miserable in heaven to them. And (laughs) isn't the bishop a a universalist too? I can't remember on that. If I, if I recall, he, he like picks a church of England, uh, you know, a, a fake bishop, like, but I think he, he put it in the church. Of <laughs> right. England yeah. Well, he seems yeah, to be it, channeling some of the, yeah, some of the stuff like, like guys like Spong, although I think that's yeah, before mm-hmm. his time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> or, or, or who wrote uh, Honest to God? Um, that was, oh, um, was that Pike? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I think so too. I, I just remember he's, and I always put like a, a funny voice in my head when I would read his passages, especially. He's like, my dear boy, of course, we, we all rejected the supernaturalistic. It's, it's uh, too, uh, too objective, blah, 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 you know. <laughs> I mean, but, but I, it's funny that some people will use uh, that book to say, well, look, Lewis was a universalist. Like, he puts a universalist as one of the guys who wants to go back to hell. 
Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's important, you know, that both Dante and Lewis, you know, these, these were not theological treatise. You know, that was not the intent. Exactly. Uh-huh. They were allegorical, uh-huh. but they're really good allegories. Yeah. Right. And, and that does need to be said for Dante. But uh, my point with Dante is really that you do see some emphasis when you look at theological works of that time of some uh, theological writers um, who are not doing the work that Dante is doing of, of making a commentary there, but are doing the actual hard theology of coming up with a systematized you know, way of in which hell is enacted uh, well beyond what is revealed uh, in scripture. But when you look at some of the ancient fathers, and I'm looking at St. Andrew of uh, Caesarea, uh, he mentions, this is the tie back into the great divorce. He says, quote, I think that by his watchful providential power, throwing out flames of fire, which the righteous illuminate, but do not burn, but the sinners burn and do not illumine. And so the Eastern fathers, I've seen several of them, you know, make this point that when it comes to God's wrath and God's love, that when you're experiencing God, it's different for those who are in Christ, who are Mm -hmm. in the son of God versus those who are outside. So mm-hmm. when anyone, believer or unbeliever, is like, how could a loving God, you know, like do this, condemn people? Well, if you remain, you know, in the old Adam, covered in, you know, not even covered, but just in your sins, then you're going to be burned by the holy God, you know, who reveals himself at the end of the age. Whereas those of us who are clothed by that righteousness of the Son who have made it our own, who are being sanctified, Lord willing, in this life, will be glorified in the age to come, we will start to to burn out bright and to shine with Christ. I can't help but think of the transfiguration as well. Um, and admittedly, this is not, you know, I've, I've never read an application of the transfiguration to the, the end of time, but I can't help but think about how the description that's given in the gospel is that Christ, when he appears you know, in this glorious, you know, state of who he is, they make the point to say that, like, he is so white, so bright. It's unlike any clothing that any launderer on earth can make. And that's what we're being clothed with, you know, by virtue of our baptism, in our faith, you know, and in the age to come, made to take those white robes that are given to us at the marriage supper of the Lamb that we put on. And then we, too, start to become like him, you know, not just merely wearing those clothes, but becoming like him in the holiness that he's gifting to us in our sanctification. That's uh, beautifully put. Um, and I just have sort of one, one more remark on uh, the East versus West thing. And then um, I'd like to maybe hear some, some closing remarks from, from Father Isaac. But I, I think First of all, yeah, Andrew, really, really well said in, in drawing from Lewis and sort of the how love and wrath is, you know, in some ways the same thing experienced by people who've kind of made their own beds. Um, I think another thing that just sort of strikes me, and this is maybe a polemical point, but um, as far as the Eastern Orthodox being sort of the place to reside if you want to believe that more people go to heaven than elsewhere. I just have to say that historically speaking, this is like the, the final frontier of people who say that the extra ecclesium nulla salus or whatever, you know, my Latin's terrible, um, that that literally means 
being outside of canonical Eastern Orthodoxy, right? So, so whereas like 90% of Protestants will say, well, the Catholics and Orthodox, as long as they have a true faith in Christ, they'll probably, probably go to heaven, right? And maybe there's like Calvinist fundamentalists that like, I don't know, the guys who protest soldiers' funerals or whatever, they, they probably don't think that, right? But outside of Eastern Orthodoxy, that little group, and maybe like some set of Agantist Catholics, you know, that most people kind of recognize that you can be a Christian if even though you don't belong to our specific little church, right? But it is a it is a mainstream belief amongst many Eastern Orthodox that like, yeah, kind of Catholics, Protestants, there's a chance they're all just gonna go to hell anyways. <laughs> and, and this isn't necessarily a theological point, but I think it, we have to just look at these things realistically and say, well, look, um, maybe you want to adopt this enlightened view that does away with God's wrath or whatever, but um, let's not kid ourselves into saying that there's like some perfect, pristine, you know, uh, ecclesiastical home where First of all, everybody agrees on everything. Um, and second of all, where this is even really representative because it, it has to be recognized that it's not a mainstream or popular, which is kind of what we would say is like Catholic and creedal, you know, in some ways, uh, view in any church. And yeah, I, I think that's... Say, yeah, go ahead, Isaac, please. Oh yeah, I, I think that I think that's really good. Good to point out that you know the ecclesiastical grass is not necessarily greener, and um, there probably needs to come to a point for at least at least I can say for me there's come to a point where um, with all the messiness that is in the Anglican world, um, whether my own corner of it or the Anglican world in general, I, at this point I just got a bloom where I'm planted, and, and, mm -hmm. and deal with deal with what what the Lord has given us. And, um, you know, the, the, the hue of my ecclesiastical neighbor's lawn um, is probably a trick of the light. And, and so, uh, uh, yeah, but uh, and, you know, even if you do go to the east, I mean, I, I don't I don't have a lot of their specifics on the afterlife pinned down. It's kind of hard to pin down the east on some of these things anyway. But um, outside of kind of really fringe things like like what David Benley Hart wrote. Um, they still acknowledge a hell. They still acknowledge anguish. They still acknowledge um, wrath, even if it's done in a different way. Right. And that is um, something that's kind of ironic that you have Hart and others. I mean, you have universalism you know, in all aspects of churches across the, the globe, but talking about this universalism, but very much I've, I've heard from Eastern Orthodox who've said, you know, you're going to hell because you don't belong to the, the Eastern Orthodox church. So it's interesting that there's this very much, uh, I don't know if it's a tension or, but this, you know, opposition of theological truths that are found within members of the Eastern Orthodox uh, church. Not saying that we don't have within Anglicanism some very uh, uh, opposite uh teachings which uh may not be within the formularies but persons who espouse teachings that are contrary to uh, the formularies or scriptures or the fathers yeah but but i mean that's kind of where that's we're, we're making the opposite point right not that we've got the perfect tradition but that like uh 
exactly. look, whether it's David Bentley Hart or Von Balthazar or basically every liberal bishop or, you know, ELCA, you know, uh, top of the ladder person over there, you know, they kind of have more in common with themselves than any of them does with really the mainstream of their own tradition, mm -hmm. much less, you know, the apostolic faith that, you know, uh, the Orthodox amongst each tradition shares. Mm -hmm. right? Well, I think that's the safe thing. Well, I don't want to say safe, but the, the honest thing about Anglicanism is that when we're honest with ourselves and we go back to our formularies, the articles talk about precisely that the churches uh, have uh, erred and it doesn't give any qualification of, and we never have and never will err. But that's why we root ourselves upon uh, the faith once delivered, upon the Holy Scriptures and upon the way the church um, has interpreted uh, through the fathers in terms of the path uh, that we've been provided and given from the very uh, beginning of Christ's Holy Church. Semper Reformanda. Amen. Well, brothers, it's, it's, I've got uh, 59 minutes and 52, three, four. I think we're going to hit exactly an hour here. There we go. And I feel like this is a good place to kind of bookend the conversation and it'll sit there hopefully not for six months and we can pick it up whenever we want, you know, and kind of tease out any one of these points could be another several podcast episodes. That sounds great. Awesome. Looking forward to it. Great. Well, thank you, dear listener for listening in. And if you have any uh, comments or questions, feel free to reach out and we'll see you next time. Goodbye. God bless. It was the spirit of our forefathers that built that grand building. I believe that that spirit is with us still and will help us to, to rebuild it one day when we've served and suffered a while, a little longer. Build it again to the, to the glory of, of Jesus Christ. Miserable Offenders is a production of the North American Anglican. Learn more at N-O-R-T-H-A-M Anglican.com.